Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hello, this is Simon Brew. I'm the editor of Film Stories magazine and a very warm welcome to the Film Stories podcast. Sorry about that. Uh, <clears throat> I literally had to fly in from outer space. Come with me. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. In movies, movies that have stories. That the story just sucks them in. This is just the beginning. Stories. We would be honored if you would join us. Hello and a very warm welcome to Film Stories with Simon Brew. I am Simon Brew. As always, it's all you need to know about me. The aim of the podcast, though, is the title suggests I'm here to talk of the stories of films. And I tend to talk about development stories, release stories, marketing stories, production stories, all the little bits and bobs that go to make the films that we know and sometimes love just that, the films that we know and sometimes love. The films I tend to cover in this podcast, well, they tend to have a bit of a mainstream leaning to them. They're films that I'm interested in or invested in to some degree as well. I'm not interested punching down or snark really I just I, I just think it's such a monumental achievement to get a film made that ultimately that's what this podcast is a celebration of but that's as much introductory waffle as you need from me what I'm going to do now is crack on with the first of the two films I'm going to talk about and in time-honored fashion I'm going to play a snippet of its trailer our son is dying mankind faces extinction 16 months ago, I, Robert Kappa, and a crew of seven left Earth frozen in a solar winter. Our mission, reignite the sun before it's too late. Welcome to Icarus 2. Welcome indeed. More to the point to 2007 Sunshine, directed by Danny Boyle, written by Alex Garland. Uh, Danny Boyle films tend to only have one or two writers credited. He's not one to go in for massive rewrites uh, and getting, sorry, in the terms of getting lots of other writers in to do the rewrites. He tends to stick with the original writers. Um, the cast for this one was Cliff Curtis, Killian Murphy, Michelle Yeoh, Hiroyuko Sanada, Rose Byrne, Benedict Wong, uh, a young Chris Evans in there, uh, and Mark Strong in his traditional and Mark Strong. Strong role. The story of this one, though, well, that having completed work on his film 28 Days Later in 2002 and then Millions, which I must come to in a future podcast in 2004, Boyle was on the lookout for his next project as director. Now, a huge fan of science fiction, he'd actually come close to directing the film Alien Resurrection, which came out, what, 1997. Um, and ultimately, he'd walked away from that project, uh, admitting that the visual effects work at that point was a little beyond him. He did then tackle a science fiction project, not that you're likely to have seen it. He made a third of the film Alien Love Triangle. And what this was was a um, three 30-minute uh, sh- uh, sci-fi shorts bundled into one feature that was due to come out in 2002. But the two other so-called short films in that turned out to be uh, Mimic and Imposter and both were extended to feature length in the end which left Alien Love Triangle, Boyle's third of that project, unreleased. 
It starred uh, Kenneth Branagh, and in fact, it had only got its first public screening in 2008, and his half hour uh, has not been released on any format since. But ultimately, what did emerge uh, from his interest in science fiction was the was the film Sunshine. Uh, and this was a movie that Boyle describes to this day as the toughest film he's ever made. Now, I, I should note from the off, he talked extensively about this film with Amy Raphael in an excellent book she's done of interviews with Boyle. And I'm citing that a few times in the course of telling this particular story, as well as the very generous uh, DVD and Blu-ray extra features. Those two have been uh, the source of what you're about to hear. The start of Sunshine, though, was Alex Garland. Now, Garland had made two films to this point with Danny Boyle. He'd written the screenplay for The Beach uh, and, and The Book of the Beach, and he'd written 28 Days Later, which had proven to be a sizable British hit a few years before. And he he penned the script for Sunshine, and what he was looking to do was an idea about the future of the human race, but from an atheist and physics perspective. And so he penned what was a 90-page screenplay and he met Boyle in a pub in London at the end of 2004 and handed over the, the slim document as it was at that point. Now, it was very different to the resultant film that we'd ultimately get. Boyle would say at that point the concept was quite small. But what he was really struck by were the huge images within this film, in particular the sun. And so while Bohr would say, I didn't want to avoid this incredible setting by staying in a in a psychological world, which is what Alex's uh, original script did. Um, he, he also would add that I wanted to make it into an event and he wanted to retain what uh, he wanted to work with Garland to make that happen. He was also really conscious that science fiction films um, hadn't really focused heavily on the sun before, that he saw a little gap. He saw a story he could tell. Now, coming to the story as an agnostic, he also wanted Garland to add a, a more spiritual dimension to the script, put a little more ambiguity into it. And he was still in two minds to the point where the, the issue over CG was a sticking point in his head. But in this instance, he decided that he was going to embrace it, that he was going to take on the project, figuring that the film didn't have to rely on computer graphics but and, and visual effects, but still needed to embrace them, but nonetheless in an environment that made it possible for it to be as real as humanly possible for the actors. Now, it would take quite a while to set this film up because the development between Garland and Boyle began and lots and lots of rewrites and, and evolutions of the script happened. And all the while, the size of the project was growing. And in fact, in the end, it would, as I would say, it would take around a year to set up. Um, it would take what about half a year to film. It would take another year in post-production. And as a consequence, that knocked Danny Boyle's involvement in the 28 Days Later sequel, 28 Months uh, later down to in the end uh, taking executive producer credit helping choose the director and then watching some cuts and leaving a few notes the scale of the film they wanted to tell well Alex Garland had assumed from this it, it meant that Hollywood money was going to be required to make it and at this point the film has been budgeted in around the 35 40 million dollar uh, mark and at this stage it was felt that you needed one of the Hollywood majors to put the cash in but they weren't particularly forthcoming that 20th Century Fox was a logical home for the project that's where Boyle had made for instance The Beach but Fox wasn't happy with the returns it had 
had from Steven Soderbergh's 2002 remake of Solaris and it got a, a sizable amount of red ink off the back of that project so it wasn't really happy to put uh, to put further funds into what looked like quite a sombre sci-fi movie. Um, in came producer Andrew McDonald and what he managed to pull together was a matrix really uh, of, of British investment to pull the film together and also they did manage to get some Fox money in there as well but they went through the, the Fox Searchlight label which had its own separate part and was able to hunt for smaller projects. With the money in place then, Ball knew that he couldn't approach this film in quite the same way as he'd done his others, that science fiction came with some very, very heavy demands. And so for a start, this is the first movie that he made that he storyboarded, um, which he hadn't done before. It was also the first movie he'd done that required the building of a spaceship. And for that, he enlisted the services of production designer Mark Tilsley. Um, and there's an awful lot of research that went into the making of Sunshine. But also part and parcel of that research was knowing what rules to break. So I, I'm reminded of a story I was told about the director Roland Emmerich, who made The Day After Tomorrow, of course. And I will come to that in a future podcast. And while researching the, the day after tomorrow, Emmerich was said to have basically worked out the rules of global warming. He worked out how it was all going to work, but then also knew that he was going to break them all because he was trying to make some degree of cinematic spectacle. In the case of Sunshine, it wasn't a case that Ball was going to break every single rule because he wanted it to feel real. He wanted it to feel authentic, but he knew also that the drama had to work. And so, for instance, there are things like the radiation shields on the main ship that we see in the film the Icarus 2 and if it were a real ship it would be those shields would be made of very thin gold foil but on in the film they're they're rock solid and Boyle knew that and he knew that they had to do a bit of cheating same with the spacesuit design that you see in the film in that the, a spacesuit ordinarily is reflective you can't see inside it uh, you can't see inside the helmet of it um, but they needed to be practical they, they, they needed this to work on camera and Boyle also wanted a camera in the helmets as well but one of the consequences of this film being made by uh, the, this combination of money from lots of different sources is the budget was going to be tighter than originally planned that this was going to cost around 20 million dollars to make and as a consequence they could only make three spacesuits for the movie total um, these spacesuits needed to be practical as well um, and so they had a third as a spare and they brought in uh, Sutarab uh, Lalab who did the costume design on the film and they took influence from Japanese warrior suits in terms of the design of the, the spacesuits that we get in the movie but as Boyle says in one of his interviews with Amy Raphael that one of the consequences of the number of people getting involved with for instance the design of the suits was they become compromised to a degree and he did feel in the end film that they did become compromised um, that, that they had also to rely on materials that are available they didn't have the budget to develop their own uh, their, their own equipment really and so they had to work within a, a, a variety of parameters now, in terms of the culture of the film, Boyle reasoned that the, the plot of the movie about a, a 
basically firing uh, a payload into the sun to reignite the sun. Well, that couldn't be a mission of a single nation. This would involve the world coming together. And so he wanted a worldwide cast to reflect that. So first and foremost was Michelle Yeoh, who Boyle had seen in Tomorrow Never Dies, James Bond film. She was the first person in the cast. He brought in Benedict Wong from uh, the UK. Uh, Hiroyuki was in. He he uh, came in off the back of the Twilight Samurai movie. Uh, he could barely speak English and Boyle could barely speak Japanese, but they found their way through it. In came Cliff Curtis. Um, Gail Stevens, one of the casting team, su- suggested a, a, a pre-fame Rose Byrne. Um, you also got Chris Evans in there. Again, a pre-fame Chris Evans who came as a result of the casting search. And then there was Killian Murphy. And Killian Murphy, as it, just to give you an idea of just some of the research, he would go off and do some work with uh, Professor Brian Cox, who was one of the scientific advisors on the movie. They went off to the particle accelerator at CERN, um, and there were an awful lot of scientists involved in just giving this film a degree of authenticity that Ball felt it really needed. He also really needed his actors to bond together and to be a team and to feel like a team on the screen. And so he really put them through the mill. So they did things that we hear of in a familiar sense that, that they went off to do zero gravity training. I mean, when Tom Hanks and uh, et al. went to make Apollo 13, they did similar things so that they could experience what being in, in space was like, even though they didn't actually do weightless filming in the movie. They used a, a combination of, of practical and digital tools to get that across on screen. Um, Boyle was able to get onto a nuclear submarine um, as part of the research as well. But in terms of his cast, what he insisted that they did was live together for two weeks. And But this wasn't going to be a glamorous living together for two weeks. The filming of Sunshine must take place in London, which I'm going to come to shortly. Um, and he put all the actors together living in a student dormitory in the Mile End area. Um, he, even within the research within the UK as well, there were further things to do. Michelle Yeoh apparently went down to the Eden Project in Cornwall to work for a couple of days as well. But these actors were thrown together basically in student digs to find to find a relationship with each other that Boyle was banking would then come across on the screen all the while Ball was continuing to do his own research they went and, and consulted with NASA and NASA told him and Garland that because of the length of the space mission required in the film that the crew would need to grow and make their own meals and thus we get the garden that we see on the Icarus 2 um, the, the Icarus 2 craft within the movie it's worth noting as well that both Garland and Boyle have cited the influence of a book by Andrew Smith called Moon Dust in Search of the Men Who Fell to Earth and it was once I mean it was a culmination of all of this work that ultimately resulted in around 30 drafts being written before the film was ultimately ready to go. There was still one last decision that Ball had to make, which is what what format to shoot the film on, because, heavy, I mean, he's professed his influence and love for films like 2001, of Alien, of uh, the original Solaris, and he toyed for a little while shooting the film on 65mm film, which Kenneth Branagh had just done with Hamlet, uh, what, about a, a decade before. But what ultimately put him off that was the fact that 
that no one really would be able to watch it in 65 millimeter that when it went on the traditional exhibition circuit uh, and got its wide release most places would just be projecting in 35 millimeter and what you would have is a compromised version of what he actually wanted to film and so he opted to go with 35 millimeter in the end and uh, the way that most people would ultimately see the final movie with Alwyn Kutchler on board then to uh, shoot the film as its DP Chris Gill hired as its editor filming could finally get underway and that started in on the 23rd of august 2005 so this is like a year nearly two years before the film ultimately came out in a very hot summer uh in the middle of london now unusually for a science fiction film of this scope certainly as you see on the screen the studios that housed it were quite small the production took place at london's three mills studios now i've been i've actually been to three mills studios it's where Tim Burton's uh, stop motion Frankenweenie was made. That's when I had the pleasure of going around and having a look at that. And it's not, even though it is not without size, it is, you put it next to something like Pinewood and you can instantly spot the difference. That across three mills, they used eight stages, they built 17 sets, they had detailed models that they put together. Um, but Boyle went into this with the, with the view of as basically a small crew to make a big film. And the place where he chose to shoot it was part and parcel of that. For the actors, it was difficult, and there's no way around that. I, 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 one of the things Ball said as he came out of making Sunshine is he never wanted to make a science fiction film again because they're really taxing physically to make and so let's go back to the spacesuits for a minute for the actors wearing those they were incredibly heavy they were incredibly difficult to work with and also they were working certainly in the first part of the shoot in searing heat and so under the studio lights in these massive suits in the middle of summer even a British summer but still quite a warm summer um, it, it was borderline insufferable for some of the actors in fact at one point a stunt woman fainted due to the heat of being in one and and they struggled to get her out of the suit um to to basically bring her bring her around and, and get her right and and healthy again there was also uh, i mean hiroyuki sonada he spent quite a lot of time in one of these suits and he had to be taken to hospital one day after filming for a day in the suit such was uh, such was how physically taxing they were to wear and also to work in that these are suits designed to be used in zero gravity and yet the problem with planet earth the problem with london is there tends to be gravity really Boyle was very true to the idea of giving the actors uh, physical things to work with and physical things to react to. So there were practical tricks used throughout. Now, one of the things about sunshine in particular is just how much inevitably light there is. That is at times, it is an incredibly bright film. And a lot of that stuff was done on stage that it wasn't added in post-production as well. So the actors were, were dealing with the immense light that was just being flooded onto their faces. They were using things, they were using huge lighting rigs. Boyle was trying to avoid using green screen. They did things like putting discs coins on string to create uh, lights on the face of the actors as well but at the other end of the spectrum I mean, there's a moment in the movie I'm going very spoiler light here where Chris Evans finds himself uh, in very in freezing cold water and the thing is 
they just put him in freezing cold water. They didn't have the funds to do uh, CG effects or anything like that. Evans was was put into a tank of freezing water, and the shivering you see on screen is very much Captain America uh, lying prone, shivering his face off on screen. It's real. And Boyle in Amy Raphael's book argues that you know the actors wanted it this way as well. But even so, it was a hugely intense shoot for them. There were little things that he did as well. I mean, Chipo Chung plays the voice of the Icarus computer and instead of her uh, instead of that work being added in looping in ADR and post-production uh Chung was on set so that particularly Killian Murphy could could converse that there could be some back and forth between the two of them all the while while the filming was going on at three mills meanwhile um the floor above the cg work had begun as well on a separate floor and it, what what that meant is it allowed Boyle to bring both sides of the production together that while he was doing the practical filming downstairs the cg work was going on upstairs so the cg team could come and look at the practical stuff that was going on and make sure it married up that there was constant communication between the two and and Boyle made sure that everyone was included and and conversing very early in the process and and it needed to be that way as well because they had to be frugal there were small things going spoiler light there are two ships in this film um and they couldn't afford to build two ships and apparently the way and, and the way they differentiated them they ended up dressing the set in a different way for the second of the two ships and that involved adding a layer of dust and that layer of dust was cornish pasty dust make of that what you will who knew that was a thing um also there are things like head of production prosthetic figures of certain cast members needed making and so they would find themselves uh meeting let's just say versions of them that were slightly less animated than the real thing there were also little rules that Boyle employed that he wanted different about his sci-fi movie. And one of them is uh, at no point in the movie did he want to cut back to what was going on on planet Earth. He really wanted to get across that this was a crew in the middle uh, uh, pretty much nowhere heading to the sun to save the planet without those shots perhaps something like the Martian I, I think is the most obvious modern reference of, of people on earth willing them on and the reaction shots and stuff like that it's worth noting too that not everything in the script uh, was filmed or quite worked out we don't see absolutely everything and in particular there was I seem to keep going down these uh, these little rabbit holes in this podcast at the moment let's just say there was a fruity scene that was set to take place in space um but ultimately, Boyle felt that it, he would struggle to sell um, a bit of uh, a, a bit of deep, uh, deep galaxy nookie. Let's put it that way. Um, and he does argue that not many science fiction films have attempted it, yet alone got uh, got away with it. One of my favourites, again, let's go down this segue. I've started it. Um, is uh, the film Supernova, not the uh, not the modern one that's just coming out now with Colin Firth and Stanley Tucci, which is great, by the way. Um, but the uh, Walter Hill directed one that he took his name off where there's a sex scene in that film where they cg different people's heads onto the bodies so there you go if ever you're bored dig out that dvd and see what you can find there Onto less fruity matters, production would wrap up uh, around four months after filming originally began. But then the really intense work would ramp up all over again. That this would be a very, very long edit. And again, going back to the excellent Amy Raphael book in there, Boyle talks quite candidly about the fact that he thinks he and Chris Gill spent too long editing the movie in the end. And that to a degree, he lost the feel of the film. And what he found was that they were waiting 
waiting for the CG work to come in to be able to join all the bits of the film up. But while the CG film work was still being done, they were editing the movie and they were tinkering away with a film. Um, and the, what their editing was doing was making it work without the CG. And so when the CG came in, again, it didn't quite mesh in the way that they originally wanted it. And what he said in hindsight is he should have taken a few months away, edited it only when the CG was done. Um, but nonetheless, I'd, I'd still argue they came up with something particularly strong. They would add an extra sequence in post-production as well, that the final shot of the movie, well, they went and did a test version of that in a park in London. And off the back of that, Fox was persuaded, Fox Searchlight was persuaded to stump up a little bit more money so that they could fly off to a very cold Stockholm just to add one extra sequence towards the end. The CG work um, is worth touching on that because, it, I mean, that, that in itself is, it was really quite frugal by the standards of what you actually see on the screen. It was done by the award-winning MPC in London, but they offset the fact that they were working on a tight budget by the fact that they were working on a film with an enormous budget at the same time. So the same company was doing the effects work for Roland Emmerich's 10,000 BC, and basically the fact that it had one very, very well-paying job allowed MPC to take on this this slimmer uh, in terms of finance anyway uh, project in in the, which turned out to be sunshine of course and MPC's work in this I really think is really quite special as well the final cut of the the film was dark and downbeat um, and, and there is a dark and downbeat kind of somber tone to quite a lot of the movie and again a, a very spoiler light I've given away less than you think there if you've not seen the film um, and but this was uh, an instance where even though the studio wasn't necessarily happy with that he couldn't do anything about it because built into the contract uh, that Boyle had on his films was final cut on the movie now I don't think Boyle is a dictator in that sense I don't think he stomps around um, in, in a kind of Michael Cimino kind of way saying this is the only way and he's always been a collaborative filmmaker but nonetheless he knew how he wanted this film to go and thus the, the final act of the film which ultimately critics would, um, would that would be the bit that critics push back at um, really that he was able to stick with that because it was written into his contracts his films are frugal enough that he can have the final cut on the movie and also they're successful enough that not many people really argue with that the film then, uh, I mean, it had a couple of release date delays that was originally due in October 2006. Then that moved to May 2007. Ultimately, it premiered in Germany at the end of 2007 at a film festival before coming out, getting a wide release in the April of that year. Uh, it wouldn't make it to the US until July, although that was brought forward. It was originally going to be the autumn. But the film wasn't a, a huge financial success, really. In fact, quite the opposite. That even though the reviews for it were, I think it's probably fair to say, quite good rather than great, the movie, well, it, it did decent box office, but nowhere near really what had been hoped for or what had been expected from the film. That the movie had ultimately cost $20 million to make. It would only take about, it wouldn't even take $4 million in the US, actually. And it would take $31 million outside of the US. And it would be regarded as something of a disappointment, even though consequent to its release, it, it's built its reputation up 
up and it's been turned out to be a regular catalogue seller on disc formats and on demand as well. Boyle though would admit, quote, the film drove me mad. It was insane. I've never made anything like it. Doing Slumdog in Dubai was a breeze compared to trying to direct a science fiction movie for $20 million. And of course, what Boyle's referring to there is uh, one of his subsequent projects, Slumdog Millionaire, that a couple of years later would make a killing at the box office and win lots of Oscars, including one for Boyle and Best Picture as well. What uh, Sunshine would also mark would be the last of the three films that Boyle and Garland would do together. They've not worked together since. And, and, and that's a pity because I, I, I think if you look at The Beach, which has its problems, but I'll come to that in a future podcast, 28 Days Later and Sunshine, there's, there's huge ideas in all of them. The very fact that Boyle was able to get this film made at all, though, and released, and we're still talking about it, what, 12, 13 years on, I think that's really something. Do dig it out if you've not had a chance to see it. Don't let anyone spoil it. And that brings me to the halfway point of this latest episode of Film Stories. Um, I am a sole independent nerdy man who sits in a room and does this without the backing of a company or anything like that. Thus, the only reason I've got this far is thanks to your support and for your word of mouth. Um, If you do like this podcast, I'm always hugely indebted to you. If you could go out and spread the word, if you could subscribe at your podcast repository of choice, if you could leave ideally a hugely positive review, those things really help me enormously get the podcast noted by noticed by more and more people um also i've got new issues of film stories magazine uh out at uh, you can find out more about that at store.filmstories.co.uk and the new issue of film stories junior magazine is in production at the point that i'm recording this podcast as well again it's the same url to find out more about that but that's enough plugs let's get on with the second of the two films i'm going to talk about in this episode of film stories i'm standing in the 2000s for this one i'm going to do a sequel i'm going to play your clip Disappointed, Tim. Does your mom know you've been smoking? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Ah. Yeah, that one's gonna have to be filled. Damn, pigeons. How many times am I gonna have to replace those goddamn windows? More than once is the answer to that. That was uh, a very non-descriptive and pretty useless clip from 2003's Final Destination 2, directed by David R. Ellis, who I've covered before on this podcast, where I've talked about the majestic snakes on a plane. Written by Jay Mackay Gruber and Eric Bress, uh, with story and characters by Jeffrey Reddick. Cast for this one, uh, led by the likes of Ali Lata, AJ Cook, Michael Landis, uh, James Kirk, Linda Boyd, Keegan Connor Tracy, uh, and Terence T.C. Carson and of course uh, Tony Todd as well how could I possibly forget him now the, the, I mean when Final Destination 1 which I covered in a previous episode was released uh, in cinemas in March of 2000 it proved to be a surprise hit for New Line Cinema that it did it did 112 million dollars worldwide on a pretty modest budget and New Line Cinema at this stage I mean it was the house that was built off the back of the Elm Street films really and it was never shy about looking for a sequel to what was regarded as a horror hit even though Final Destination wasn't perhaps an outright 
outright horror film. It certainly fitted that target market and that subset. And so New Line approached Jeffrey Reddick, who was the man who created the, who came up with the idea for the first Final Destination. Now, Reddick, of course, had, you may be familiar with the story, um, had originally come up with the idea of the first film as a sort of X-Files episode. That was what sparked him originally. Um, And then once he'd come up with that, in came director James Wong and his writing partner, Glenn Morgan, and they reworked the idea into the resultant Final Destination that we got. Now, Reddick, though, was interested in developing a sequel to the movie. And what he was uh, what he quickly noted was this wasn't your traditional horror follow up, that this wasn't a case of his. uh, And they they say this a lot in the commentary track on the DVD, actually. This wasn't a case of it was a bad guy in a hockey mask, that there were themes here that they could explore and play around with that would be slightly less traditional for this kind of film. Now, he came up with a few possible ideas for what the movie could be. So Final Destination, if you're not familiar with it, they tend to, well, they start with a a premonition of a huge accident. So in the first film, it's a plane crash. Um, Then the premonition, I I can't get past this spoiler, I've got to say, the premonition happens. And then the whole idea then is if you've managed to survive, uh, death has a kind of flight plan for you or come and catch up with you or will it? leave you a little bit of mystery there and so in the case of final destination 2 he was originally come came up with the idea of starting with a big hotel fire as being the catalyst for the new film but he threw that out and what changed was when he was just off on a drive and he saw a massive truck carrying logs while he was out driving and that was his moment and so what he did is he tied that to this underlying thought he had in his head that there was something of the twilight zone about final destination that it set these rules it set these foundation and spiritual myths behind it and then you put something else on top of it in this case a load of bloody logs But there was a problem. As much as New Line Cinema wanted to fast track a new Final Destination film, I mean, this one wouldn't come around until about, what, two, three years after the original film. And it didn't help that both director James Wong and his writing partner, Glenn Morgan, who'd been so pivotal to the success of the first film, were otherwise engaged at this point. They were both working on other films. They were working on the films The One and Willard. And as a result of this, fresh personnel were going to be required for Final Destination 2. The producers, of, I mean, Craig Perry, the producer of the film, I mean, he and New Line heard around 60, 70 different pitches they talk about on the DVD commentary of what the sequel could be. They met with a lot of writers. They heard a lot of ideas that they didn't like. But then in walked Eric Bress and Jay Mackie Gruber, um, primarily off the back of their script for a film that hadn't been made at that point called, you might have heard of this, The Butterfly Effect. Now, The Butterfly Effect wasn't in production, but the script was getting a degree of buzz and they did a deal with New Line that they would write Final Destination 2 if they'd be allowed to direct The Butterfly Effect and that was the deal that was done and they did go on to direct that movie. They too were attracted by the spiritual undercurrent of Final Destination 2 and they brought in, and this was what really brought the uh, appeal to New Line, uh, black humour and irony to it all. And by this stage, it had taken around a year of looking to get to this point. Once the the decision had been made that a sequel was going to happen, the actual genesis of it took far longer than you ordinarily might think for technically a horror follow up. 
The plan then was that Bress and Gruber would marry up their ideas to Reddick's central plan for the movie. And they came, at, I mean, Bress and, and Gruber are, are very good form are, in, in interviews on it. And they talk about uh, coming to it with the mantra of pitying the people who would have to write Final Destination 3 because they were determined to use every household appliance they possibly could in this film they wanted in part to make people scared of their own homes and they also knew particularly off the back of the first one that the the built-in audience for this was going to be in on it a bit more that they'd know some of the rules of what was going on although not everyone would of course and as a consequence they really wanted to build misdirection into into the sequences that they put in together for the movie i think they really do do that particularly well they knew too that one of the problems of this is the first film had the luxury of taking its time to set up the whole idea of death has a plan and in this case they had to explain this all over again just to appeal to the people who hadn't seen the first film they knew that the exposition was going to be a problem they knew that they had to put these rules in place whether the audience was familiar with the movies or not and so in the end what they did is they came up with the sequence that plays over the opening credits where there's an interview going on on the telly and they were also conscious that because they were expanding the mythos of it a little bit they were adding rules on top of rules and there's a couple as a consequence of exposition sequences that take place within the movie but what they realized after the film was released was the audience probably a little bit more tolerant of it than um, than they realized and uh, willing to uh, fill in some of the gaps because what they actually wanted was the film just to crack on and kill a few people which, of course, it ultimately got round to doing. There was still the problem of who was going to direct the film, though, that um, because it, the movie had lost James Wong, the director's chair on this particular project uh, was, was empty. Step forward, then, the, the inspired choice of David R. Ellis, now, Ellis had been working in stunts in movies since uh, since his teens, and he'd, uh, he'd gone on to become a stunt coordinator, a second unit director, a stunt performer. He'd worked on things like Freakin's Brilliant to Live and Die in L.A. He'd worked on Waterworld. He'd worked on the two Matrix sequels. He'd helped put Quidditch together in the first Harry Potter film. And he'd, just, he'd done Harrison Ford's Jack Ryan movies. And he, he, one of the projects he'd just come off was The Perfect Storm as well. And as he told IGN an interview around the time of the film's release, and Ellis has sadly passed uh, since, he said he wanted to base this film more in reality than the first one. He didn't want to shoot this as a dark and moody horror. He wanted Final Destination 2 to feel like it was, in, in, you know, in the present day, taking place in daylight. And so he, he approached the film and the sequences with that in mind. And so the incredible opening sequence of the movie, in the script, it just said something along lines up there's just going to be a terrific crash and what uh, what he decided was first of all this was going to take place during the day but he wanted to choreograph something and the objective uh choreograph something really special and the objective was he had to kill lots of people but he knew one of the challenges of this film was having to kill lots of people with not much time to shoot the killing of lots of people and not much money to spend on killing lots of people and so he was really attracted to this challenge he was also aware that that because this was a Final Destination film, he'd have an R rating to play with. He had the latitude. He could go a bit gorier. He didn't have to cut corners to appeal to a family rating. 
also because of his own stunt background he was very very keen to make the film as practical as humanly possible that he watched uh, he, he hadn't been um, a, a massive uh, he wasn't someone who'd watched the first film and then lobbied to direct the second one that at the point where he was offered the job he did watch the first movie to give him a flavor of it but he knew it was incumbent on him to raise the bar uh, a bit when it came to the sequel so when he came aboard, he would uh, he would be involved in developing the script as well. And he and the creative team would work for four months after Ellis came on as director ahead of shooting just to shape the screenplay and the sequences that they wanted to put on screen. The casting was going to be slightly challenging because it was clear uh, that Devon Sowar, who headlined the first movie, was not going to be coming back for the sequel, although theoretically he could have done going as spoiler light as possible. Now, different schools of thought on this. On the DVD commentary, for instance, that was recorded just after, I mean, that was recorded back in, what, 2003, 2004. They talk about not wanting to bring too many characters back from the first film who were roughly in the same place because they'd just be telling the same story from two different perspectives really however what was also rumored around the time was that there was a contract dispute uh, that took place between new line cinema and devon soa and that's what scuppered his involvement in the film let me say that that's an alleged contract dispute and that if you're um, if you're an ambulance chasing lawyer um, I, I have no view on this i'm just reflecting the views of others i'm i'm, I'm a proud coward the only other holdout the, the holdovers then from the first film in the end they went with Ali Lata returning as the character of Clear Rivers and Tony Todd who comes back to play Tony Todd and let me tell you nobody plays Tony Todd better than Tony Todd. A lot of the uh, casting, uh, certainly the new casting for the movie, was um, was fairly late in the day. That uh, Michael Landis, for instance, he came onto the film and he takes quite an important role in it. He came onto the film days before shooting began. That um, he, he, even a week before he hadn't been cast, but he suddenly became available. There was a gap in the ensemble, and when he turned up on set at the last minute, he'd not even had a chance to read the script at that point. Some characters changed uh, through their casting. In particular, Terence T.C. Carson uh, was cast in the role of Eugene. Now, Eugene in the screenplay was envisaged as a kind of Woody Allen style character. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, but Carson, let's just say, isn't isn't that kind of character at all. He was more commanding and looked amazing in a stripy jumper. Certainly better than I ever uh, I ever could. Also cast with just a week before, <laughs> less than a week before filming was Keegan Connor Tracy. I mean, this really was a bit of a seat of the pants casting exercise by the sounds of it there were auditions that took place of course uh, not least for the lead role in the film and uh, she the, the person who prevailed well that was AJ Cook and she stood out amongst the 200 or so who were ultimately auditioned to take the lead in the movie um, and by 18th of February 2002 Final Destination 2 was finally ready to go before the cameras what they discovered fairly quickly was it was cold that this was a film that takes place uh, during spring break or for us in Britain the spring holiday um, and so the, the, the idea was that here's a bunch of uh, here's a bunch of teens here's a bunch of students who are going off together are going on a road trip and then going off and having some nice holiday where they'll sit down and they'll read books and they'll drink coffee and they'll all be in bed for eight o'clock something like that um, the problem was it was freezing cold they were up against snow that occasionally meant they had to stop filming um, and, and it was it let's just say the wintry conditions didn't lend themselves to what had necessarily been written down in the screenplay 
Now, going back to the crash that start that was really the catalyst for the film, the the exact line in the screenplay was said to be, quote, the carnage is immeasurable. And David R. Ellis, well, he got dressed, he rubbed his hands and boy, did he take this on. And he used his experience from the last two Matrix films um, and he plotted with uh, he plotted out how this sequence was going to come together. This immense car crash. Now, on a practical point of view, what they were able to do was shut down four and a half miles of highway to film it. Um, as a consequence of that, every every car that you see in the sequence is a stunt car or it's something to do with the production. And they had to work out the sequence that the cars were coming in. They had to work out the order in which everyone was going to die or, or be injured or whatever. And so they did this in the time-honoured tradition. They got a bunch of matchbox cars out and they sat on the floor and they started mapping it out that way. In fact, even, even the night before they started shooting this sequence, they were sat on the floor floor of the hotel with toy cars just prepping and making sure that they got the order right that the thing started with toy cars then storyboards then they had to prep the physical cars themselves um, so that they'd be safe for the stunt team and there are a lot of stunt performers at work here and then and then it comes full circle they're sat with the toy cars just to make sure it all worked um, the the key moment in that in that huge crash at the start is the dropping of logs off the off the truck that I mentioned before and they again they try to do this practically but the problem they found is when you drop logs off a truck they bounce about an inch off the floor that didn't really give the level of cinematic drama I think it's fair to say that they were looking for as a consequence that was one of the moments where they brought in CG and the logs that you see in the movie once they come off the truck they are computer generated and there are moments obviously over some more obvious than others where they did lean on computer work in order to get across what they were trying to get across but still there was that grounding impractical that they were really looking for so there's one sequence that takes place fairly early in the film it's a delightful sequence as well where an apartment building starts burning that uh, one of the characters in their apartment uh, carrying a very posh apple product no sign of product placement there chums um, and it's it sets on fire and what they did for that sequence was they built the apartment on a stage they put gas jets in the floor they went backdraft really they built on and i'm coming to that in a future podcast as well they went on the principles that have been established in that film and and thus they could control where the fire was and how severe it was um, and they put the sequence together as practically as they humanly possibly could um, there's also um, a sequence that takes place in a padded cell this must all sound really odd if you've never seen the film um, and the, the, the problem they hit when they were filming there was that the whole set was white and as a result, the cast and crew quickly realised they needed to take their shoes off for this one. I mean, my late mum would be proud of that. Um, they'd all have to wear white socks and such like while they were shooting those sequences for fear of, of just getting any dirt or muck anywhere on that particular set. Um, on a more mundane level, there's uh, there, there's a sequence where someone's in a dentist chair and a fish lands in their mouth. Again, if you've not seen the film, this might all sound a bit odd. Uh, no computers there. That was just one of those things where it took an awful lot of takes to get right. It feels to me like that's the equivalent for in Final Destination 2 of Ripley shooting a basketball in Alien Resurrection. That they basically had to drop this fish in someone's mouth and they kept missing and eventually they 
they finally got it in there, but it took quite a while for it to precisely land where they needed it to land. There was, I mean, what, one, there's one particular kill in the film that involves a pane of glass, which, um, I mean, it's an absolute hoot on screen, I think. Um, but it surprised me to learn that that was done practically. I thought there was a, a large degree of CG in that. And it involved, um, rather than actually putting a human being under said uh, pane of glass, they built a full cast of the actor concerned. Um, the, the glass did its work. And the first attempt to kill this fake actor didn't work and left uh, the legs just still standing so what they did is they went back and added more charges and explosions and they put in more blood packs so it splatter everywhere um, they tried that one um, and the effect all worked in camera to the point where the tape of that effect pretty much went on loop on set while they were shooting the movie and they all passed it round uh, because it had gone so well pretty much a, a fairly big morale boost on that one the film was, I mean, it was shot in Vancouver. So it shot in Canada it, 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 using a mix of studio and location stuff. And it, I mean, it was quite a long shoot, really. It would wrap up filming on the 3rd of May 2002. So it'd been, the, the practical side of it took, what, about just shy of three months, which for the film it might be something of a surprise. The movie had cost $26 million to make, and it was still some way away from its release date, which will come at the end of January in 2003. In came the effects company Digital Dimension um, to do the uh, to, to do the CG work and a lot of the post-production work on the movie as well. And then it was it was into post. Now the film was um, as you would expect tuned a little in the post-production period. Um, that what they found in the edit was they didn't necessarily need to give as much information to the audience as they originally thought. There's a moment in the film where a character has his hand down a waste disposal unit and they shot a reasonable amount of coverage of this um, but what they what they realised as they edited and tuned the film was that the audience again would fill in the gaps, that all they had to do was show the basics of a lot of the setups and by what they didn't show well that would get the reaction from, uh, from the, the, the viewers at the end of it all that said there was still uh, work that needed to be done around the ending of the film that they they cut together five or six different versions of the final scene in the movie i'm not going to tell you what it is um i, I, it, I mean it'd been a tricky one to shoot just because they sat around a table and they're outside sat around a table and so the light was diminishing as they're shooting so as they cut to different people what you're actually seeing is shots pieced together as they had to keep moving the table around this vast expanse of space to be able to catch what Whatever light that they could but they tried it in a variety of different ways to gain the maximum effect and also what they were trying to do was leave the door open to a final destination three that Ellis had been signed on to make the third Final Destination film and he was open to the idea of doing it. The problem was actually that he was uh, he was going to go straight into the making of the film Cellular with one Jason Statham. I've heard of him, I gather he's quite good. Um, as a consequence, he ultimately wouldn't direct the third film, um, but the second film would go down something of a treat. That I, I mean, in terms of critical reaction, it probably went roughly where the, you'd imagine that the review were quite mixed and there's a little bit of snobbiness to it but nonetheless there was real appreciation for just the setup 
um, the, the setup of all the kills and the incidents that Ellis and his team have put together on screen. And I, I really think it's the best of the series. I think I know I rewatched it this, this weekend, just gone preparing for this. I'd forgotten just how much joyous fun Final Destination 2 is. And I, I, I do think it's it's well worth a revisit if you've not been there for a little while. The film would um, would prove to be not quite the size of the first movie at the box office, but it would be nicely profitable um, again for New Line that it would ultimately take $46 million in the US, do roughly the same again overseas, $90 million worldwide take. In the US, it opened on January the 31st, 2003 in second place at the US box office, only just, it was just beaten out by The Recruit with Colin Farrell, remember that? Um, also opening that same weekend was Biker Boys, which uh, opened with $10 million. remember that? No, me neither. Um, also, the, the, the films that were also around, there's a bit of Oscar fare still there, that Chicago was in the charts, the Lord of the Rings, the Two Towers, Catch Me If You Can, About Schmidt, all, uh, all in and around the top ten. Ellis ultimately then wouldn't return to make the third film, although he did have to defend some of the pushback over the gore of the movie in the aftermath of its release, as he told Entertainment Weekly. Uh, it's sick. I look at it and I go, God, that's just not right. But we decided if we were going to do it, then do it. And that meant showing gore instead of cutting away from it. And he also revealed that they had no problems with the rating board, adding, it's kind of sick. They'll let you show all that stuff. But the ratings board did let them show all that stuff. The third Final Destination film would see the return of James Wong as director. I don't think it quite managed to capture the majesty of the first or second, but I still think it's a really fun franchise and do seek the second film out if you've not had the pleasure. It's like watching a really good episode of Casualty. And that brings me to the end of this latest episode of Film Stories. You can find more from me on Twitter at Simon Brew. You can find the entire Film Stories project at Film Stories Pod. Uh, our website at filmstories.co.uk. You'll find every weekday we're updating it with loads of movie news, with reviews, with features, with all sorts of nonsense and mayhem. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash filmstoriesonline. We're on YouTube with video exclusive film stories at youtube.com slash filmstories. And also we've got our print magazines, but being as I plug them in the middle of this podcast i ain't gonna do it again instead i'm gonna wish you the very best i'm gonna thank you for your time and thank you for listening and for supporting me the most important thing as always is that you stay safe and well i'll be back again soon with another bunch of film stories until then you will take care bye bye